All right. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Rob, and today we are going to be celebrating the Lord's table together. I'd like to read a couple of verses from Titus chapter 2. It says in verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. The grace of God. Oh, how we love the grace of God. We sing of the grace of God. We encourage each other with the grace of God. We encourage our own hearts in the grace of God. And I think that we have really uh, such a weak view and understanding of what grace is. So often if you ask somebody what it is, they will very quickly reply, it's unmerited favor. And that is true. And that in and of itself is a wonderful thing. It's, it's a gift from God that we simply don't deserve. It's God's favor. It's God's goodness towards us. We don't deserve it. We never have. We never will. It's a gift because God is gracious. Amen? God is loving and kind. And the thing about grace is that, for one thing, we're saved by it. We're saved by grace. Salvation itself is a gift of grace by God. But then it's, it's even more than that. Not only are we saved by grace, but we're kept by grace. God keeps us lovingly. Not only are we kept by grace, we serve by grace. Even our service to Him, God empowers our service and receives our service. It's all grace. And not only that, the Bible says we're trained by grace. I love that verse 12. It says, teaching us that, hold on, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. It's a grace that teaches us. The ESV says it's a grace that trains us. And so we're able to do what we've been called to do by God's grace. Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. Amen? Amen. I want to read an excerpt from a Puritan. His name is John Owens. And he says this about grace. Christ is full of grace and truth. He is full and therefore sufficient to fulfill the purpose of grace. He was full of grace, so as to be an example of obedience both to men and angels. He was full of grace, so as to have uninterrupted communion with God. He is full of grace to supply all the needs of His people. He is full of grace to show forth the glory of the divine nature through His human nature. He is full of grace to bring His people to perfect victory over every trial and temptation. He is full of grace to enable His people to obey every righteous and holy law of God. He is full of grace to the utmost capacity of a limited, created, finite nature. He is full of grace to bring the fullest pleasure and delight to His Father. He is full of grace as an everlasting monument to the glory of God in giving such inconceivable excellences to the Son of Man. The grace of God is so much deeper than anything that we can ever understand. But praise God for His good grace. By it, we are saved. By it, we are kept. By it, we have all that we need to be able to serve and obey our God and Father. And that 
is a very real part of what we do when we come to the Lord's table. We remember the grace of God and the sacrifice that was made for us there at Calvary. When Jesus gave His life, that's grace. Grace for us. We didn't deserve it, but He gave it. Whenever God provides for us, that's grace. When God gives us strength, that's grace. When God comforts our hearts, that's grace. When God leads us, that's grace. Every good thing that we receive from God is grace, and it was won for us at the cross. It was purchased for us by the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus said that as often as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we do it in remembrance of Him and what He's accomplished for us. And so may we remember the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's a gift. His life given for ours. The righteous for the unrighteous. The just for the unjust. Amen. What a gift. What a gift of grace. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we remember. We remember the goodness of Jesus Christ. We remember the good gift that He has given us. And we remember and recognize every good gift that we enjoy came at an awesome cost. We remember His body broken and His blood poured out for us, and we celebrate. Amen. Father God, we thank You so much. We give You praise and honor. Thank You, Lord, that You gave first, that You loved us first. Thank You for Your amazing grace and incredible mercy. Thank You for Your infinite love towards us, Your children. A love that is beyond our ability to ever fully grasp or comprehend. I believe we will spend an eternity of eternities going deeper into the love of Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to pay such an awesome price for us. Thank you that you were willing to obey the Father all the way to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Thank you, Lord, that the grave could not hold you that You really are the, the innocent One, the Holy One of God, that You rose again from the grave as our victor, as our champion, conquering the grave, conquering sin, conquering Satan. And thank You that we are alive in Christ, having put our faith in Him, and our assurance rests solely on You, Lord Jesus. And I thank You for the gift of communion as we are able to remind ourselves continually of Your saving grace and Your constant grace, the grace that is sufficient to meet every single need that we may face in this life. Thank You, Father. We remember You this day, Lord Jesus, and we praise You. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. You may partake. God is good. Amen? Amen. Praise Him. Praise Him. Word. We're not in James this week. We're just doing a one-week detour. We're going to be in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We're grateful to be able to gather around Your Word and to learn from You, to learn of You. Lord, we want to grow. We need to grow. You expect for us to grow in godliness and Christ-likeness. And Lord, you give us what we need to do that. And so help us. Help us, Lord. We thank you for this text. It's a really glorious passage of Scripture. I'm very eager and excited to share it with the church today. I pray that you would speak through me to your people. 
and that you would bless everybody here today, for we all need to hear from you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, before we get into the text, I just kind of want to talk about some things broadly. Now, the title of this message is Every Part Doing Its Part. I guess you could summarize the text with that one statement, every part doing its part. And I would say that this is a commitment, a call to commitment, commitment to the body of Christ. Now, you know, first I want to start with the idea of progress and the need for progress. We are all on a journey. The Christian life, it's a journey. We don't want to be stagnant. We don't want to stall out. We don't want to be in a stalemate, as it were. We want to move forward. Years ago, I worked as a welder in Tennessee at a company called Yoast International. And they have this program called Continual Improvement. And if you got to know the processes well enough in any department and saw a way that the process could be improved upon and that they could actually speed up productivity, you would get a bonus. And so continual improvement. Well, that really, that idea really stuck with me. And I have come to embrace that concept in my own life. I desire continual improvement. I don't expect perfection for myself. I am not. I never will be. But I do pursue excellence, and I do want to improve. And I'm always considering how I might do that, how I might improve, or you might say progress, progress. That's exactly what Paul called Timothy to do in 1 Timothy 4.15. He said, meditate on these things, give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Paul told Timothy that he should be progressing and that the church should see it. They should recognize the growth that is happening in him. Now, that's not just for the pastor, that's for all Christians, because we are on a journey. We are on a journey. And as I said, it's continual improvement, not constant perfectionism. Amen? Progress is key. And we don't really gauge ourselves by other people. We don't look at this person's fruit or this person's success or this person's growth. We just look at ourselves. So often as we just consider the little victories in our own life, we can be encouraged by that. Uh, you know, for me as a pastor, I'm constantly considering how I can progress as a man of God, as a teacher, as a leader, as a shepherd. Um, I want to see, you know, the church progress in the things that matter. That's my desire. Um, you know, the day that I stop looking to improve and progress, I need to just hang it up. The day that we stop caring about progressing or growing or learning or moving forward, that's a problem. And so, in a lot of ways, I guess what we're talking about here, it requires commitment. We have to be committed. Amen? There's a need for commitment. Many people are afraid of the word commitment. Did you know that? Of course you did. We know that. In this day and age that we live in, people are scared of it. They have little regard for the idea of commitment. But if you want to have anything in life worth having, that's exactly what it takes. It takes hard work. It takes commitment. Think about marriage. Absolutely takes commitment, hard work. Career, if you want to progress and grow, it takes commitment. Diet and fitness, the same. Even hobbies. If you want to excel or be good at something that you love and enjoy doing, 
Most people have to work at it. It takes time and commitment. But not least of which, I would say the most important thing, and that's our commitment to Jesus and our commitment to His body, commitment to the church. I mean, we have to be all the way committed. Jesus said, count the cost. You have to count the cost and determine if you have what it takes. If you aren't committed, what are you going to do when trials come, when temptations come, when discouragements and doubts come? Because we all know full well they do. They do, right? And when it rains, it pours. So if we have a purpose in our heart that we are committed, that we are in this thing for the long haul, that we are on a journey, then, man, we're in trouble. Well, today I want to talk about commitment in the church, commitment to the church. Every part doing its part. Every part fully committed. Every part present. Well, it might help us to start by asking the question, what is the church exactly? That might seem like a silly question, but I think from time to time we need to remind ourselves. The word simply means called out ones. Called out ones. Now, that's a very, that's a very meaty little phrase. It says a lot. First off, it's people. People. It's called out ones. So it's people who have been called out. Called out of what? Called out of the world. Called out of our old life. Called out of the old world system and, and philosophical ideologies that are totally contrary to God and His truth and His ways. Amen? So by grace, God called us out of the world, redeemed us, and called us into His church, this body of redeemed believers and saints. The Bible sometimes refers to the church as the house of God, the pillar and support of the truth. I love that. The house of God and the pillar and support of truth. So what that essentially says is, it's the church's responsibility to uphold the truth, to preserve the truth, and pass it on from generation to generation. But even in the, the phrase, the house of God, that can get a little confusing because for a lot of people, what is the church? I'm going to the church. The church, they would say, this is the house of God. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the building, right? But the church is not a building. The church is the people. The church is the people. And so the Bible also calls us the household of God, and I like that. A household. When you talk about a household, what are you talking about generally? A family. You're talking about the family. So the household of God is the family of God. The Bible sometimes describes the church as the bride of Christ. I like that. But I think what is most helpful is the phrase, the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Jesus is the head, as it were. And we are His body. We are His hands and His feet. Now, I like that because what that communicates is that the church is a living organism. It's not just an organization. It's not an institution. It's an organism made up of believers who have trusted in Jesus Christ, have been born again, and have been baptized into the body. Amen? And that's really what we see in our text today. This is an admonition from uh, the Apostle Paul to the body of Christ, to the, to the saints there in Ephesus. And he really has two things in mind in this text that we're going to look at, in these, these uh, verses 11 through 16. The first thing we'll see 
is the responsibility of the body of Christ. If you are committed, then you have a part to play. You're responsible. Amen? The second thing we're going to see is the goal of the body of Christ. If you are committed, then make no mistake, there is a goal here. There is a goal that we are striving towards together collectively. We're not just aimlessly here. We're not just showing up because it's fun or because we don't have anything better to do. We're here for a reason. And so those are the two things that we will consider as we look at our text together. Let me just read this in its entirety for us. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. I'm reading from the New King James here. It says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking truth in love, may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Amen. What a great passage. All right, well, the first thing that we're going to look at here, as I said, is the responsibility of the body of Christ. We are all responsible. And I would summarize that responsibility into one word, edification. Edification. That's our, that is our corporate, collective, mutual responsibility. It is upon all of us that we edify. And I'll talk about what that even means. Some people might not even know what that means. I didn't know what that meant before I was a Christian. That's not a word that you typically hear uh, outside of Christianity. Well, look at uh, verse 11 with me again, verses 11 and 12. It says, And He Himself, that's Jesus, He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Jesus gave gifts to the church. Now, that again is an act of grace. That is pure grace. Not only did He save us, but then He gives us the resources, He gives us the capacity to serve Him, and then He rewards us for our service to Him, which is amazing. We don't deserve any of that, which is what makes it pure, amazing grace. And we see in Ephesians 4, 7, this very thing. It says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, He says, when He ascended on high, He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So, Jesus gave gifts to the church. Now, there are different kinds of gifts. There are different categories of gifts, if you will. There are what we would call practical gifts, service gifts, uh, 
teaching, helps, mercy, so on and so forth. There's just a, different, a number of different ways in which we very practically serve each other, and those are service gifts. Then there are what are called sign gifts. Those are things like prophecy, words of knowledge, so on and so forth. And then there are what we would call office gifts, office gifts. And that's really what's in view here in Ephesians chapter 4. He gives some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. Those would be offices. You understand what I mean when I say an office in that sense? And so those are gifts that are given for the church. Now, we believe that the offices of apostle and prophet are no more. Those, those have closed. Um, Ephesians 2.19, it says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There's that, that phrase. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows up into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So this, this text right here is just so full of uh, significance when it comes to who we are as the church. We're the, the temple of God, the building of God, being built up. But notice that the foundation of the building was the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. Well, the foundation has been laid. There is no need for any more work to be done on the foundation. The foundation is laid. Hebrews says in chapter 1 that God in past times spoke through the prophets to the fathers, but has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. So there's a, a finality there. And so we see the office of apostle and prophet as being closed. But we still see evangelists and pastors and teachers functioning today for the good of the church, for the building up of the body of Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about right here in Ephesians. God has given evangelists and pastors who are teachers, it's, it's one, one and the same, pastor-teachers, to the church. For what? For the equipping of the saints. That's why God gave pastors and evangelists, pastors and teachers. This word equipping there, in Ephesians 4, that's our job. It's the pastor's job to equip the saints. I like that word, equipping. It's used in other places in the New Testament. When Jesus calls the disciples and they are mending their nets, same Greek word. The nets that they were using to fish with, they would be tattered and torn and dirty, and they would have to repair. They would have to remend the nets so that they were able to fulfill their purpose. In the same way, we need to be equipped, we need to be mended, we need to be able to fulfill the purpose for which Christ saved us, to do the work of the ministry. And so, look, I, I say this to say, I'm not the professional minister who does all the ministry. You know that, right? Do you understand that? Do you really? Can I get an amen? I mean, if you really believe this, if you really understand this, I mean, because I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure about that because we've all got a part to play, every single one of us. 
If you are in Christ and part of the body of Christ, then you are collectively part of the net, if you will. You have a job to do. You have an area of ministry in which you are to serve. You have a gift that Jesus has given you for the edification of the body of Christ. It's my job to try to help you understand what those gifts are. It's my job to try to help and direct you. It's my job to, to disciple you guys corporately and collectively. But I can't disciple everybody individually. That would be impossible. It's the job of the body of Christ to build itself up for the work of the ministry. Amen? For the edification. Now, edification, that's a construction term. It's a, it's a construction word. It means to build up. That's exactly the idea, to construct, to build, to strengthen. It's the opposite of to tear down. And so, it is our goal to build one another up in the body of Christ, to encourage, to strengthen, to invest, to disciple. That is the goal of the body of Christ. That's why we come together. We come together to worship Jesus. We come to receive from God because we need that, and we come to bless one another because we need that. And that is the means that God has chosen to use to bless His people is each other. That is the means that God has chosen. It is His church. And we are here for the edification of the body of Christ. And we all have a part to play. We all have a part to play. Romans 12 says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us, let us use them. So here Paul in Romans 12 says, look, we're a body, and he loves that metaphor. He uses that extensively in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We collectively make up one organism. We are a body. And each part has a part to play. Each part must do its part. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. We all have different gifts. They've all been given to us by grace. He says it there again. And he says, therefore, what? Use them. Use them. That's the point that he's making there in Romans 12. He doesn't go into what all the gifts are. It's not an exhaustive list. The point he's making is use your gift. Build up the body of Christ. Make a contribution to the body where God has called you to be. Amen? That is our responsibility. That is our commitment one to another. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.3, Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. So there in Corinth, man, people were excited about the spiritual gifts. They were very boastful and braggadocious about their gifts. The reality is that people were trying to use the gifts for themselves. And Paul said, that's not the purpose of the gifts. The purpose of the gifts is for one another, to bless others. It's not for you, it's for other people. So let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Are we here to get a blessing or to be a blessing. Now, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It shouldn't be one or the other. It should be both. There's no reason why we can't be here to get blessed. 
but we need to be here to be a blessing. Amen? If we are all seeking to bless others, we are going to get blessed by others. It's just the way that it's going to work. If every part is doing its part, the whole body of Christ grows together and is mutually edified and built up. Now, on a basic personal level, we understand the concept of serving the body because, I mean, doesn't your body work to serve itself with intense commitment? I know mine does. From the moment I wake up, I am looking to take care of my needs right out the gate. Coffee, that's number one. Make it to the coffee pot. And then from there, on and on it goes all day long. So we get this. It's not rocket science. And so in the same way that we would try to serve our own needs and care for ourselves, we need to do the same in the church, one for another. You know, the body does this under the control of the head, if you will, that, just in keeping with the language of the Bible, the brain, the master control center. If we are the body, the Bible says Jesus is the head, and so we function in accordance with His heart, His will. Amen? The body of Christ works to build itself up under the headship of Christ. So let me just say this. I think this is a good point to make this point. Look, guys, Christianity is people business, period. We, the church has lost its way. I'm talking about the church at large, especially in the West. Christianity is people business. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian or an isolated Christian. Christianity is not get right with God and then get, 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 feed me, feed me. If we are not in the lives of other people on some level... Even just one other person that we are seeking to try to encourage or bless or pour into, then you are missing it. We are missing it. Christianity is community. Point blank. Christianity is being part of the body of Christ under the headship of Christ. And we live in an age and a culture where it's all individualism, individualistic. And it's all humanism, humanist. It's all about me. And that is, couldn't be further from what the church is. The church is a community of redeemed saints that exist to bless one another and serve and pour out their lives into others. I'm glad that you, uh, I got a brother over there filling me. That's, it is, it is good. And, uh, you know, when Jesus came to the disciples and they were fishing, he said, I will make you what? Fishers of men. Fishers of men. They are going to spend their lives trying to capture men and women with the gospel. It's people business. It's people work. And I know that scares us. I know that we all have a lot going on. I know that we are extremely busy and we think, how in the world could we possibly take on one more thing? Or we're introverts or we're shy or I don't know how to do that. Uh, but you know what? That just, that just ain't going to get it. That don't cut it. You, we are not walking in the fullness of what it is to be a Christian if we're not on some level trying to connect with people relationally. If we're not trying to take some of what we've received and dispense it to those who just are not as far along as we are. And you know, there's this whole journey that we're on and there are people who are ahead of us and people who are behind us. 
And we need to be looking to the people who are ahead of us so that we can grow, always remaining teachable. But we also need to be looking behind us to the people that need our help that we can encourage and invest in. And I have to say that we fail especially on that latter part, reaching back and trying to encourage. I've seen Christians for decades, they're Christians, and they haven't invested in one person You look around and you see so many younger people who are in desperate need of guidance from older brothers and sisters, but where are they? Where are the older brothers and sisters? They're not there, and may it never be. You feel me? I'm just trying not to say amen every time. You heard me? You feel me? I got to mix it up a little bit, but I mean, seriously, I'm not here to, I'm not condemning. I am not guilt tripping you. I'm just, I'm feeling it, and I'm just trying to be real with you guys. This is important. And if we're not doing this, we are not, we're missing out. We're missing the mark. We've got a responsibility. And it's something that we get better at as we do it. You know, we fumble a lot at first, of course. Like with anything else, you fumble the ball, right? But you get better at it. You learn what works and what doesn't work. You get better at knowing how to connect with people and and how to share with them your heart and the things that you see as important and beneficial and things you wish you would have known earlier on, things that you wish you would have done differently, things that you wish people would have told you. Whatever the case may be, we've got to be involved in people's lives on some level. Now, I keep using the phrase on some level because some people think that if they can't, if they can't you know, help 50 people or 100 people, then they might as well just not do anything at all. That's another issue with our day and age. If we're not doing big things, then we're just not going to do anything at all. But really, you know, what could you do for one person? Think of that. You know, do for one person what you wish you could do for a hundred people. Just do it for one. That's the way this thing works. And that person will take what they've received from you and do it for the next person. And it just happens exponentially. That's how we are here today because faithful brothers and sisters took this seriously 2,000 years ago and they got busy doing the work of the Lord, building up the body of Christ, and here we are 2,000 years later. We're in that line and we have a responsibility, amen? We have a responsibility right here in front of us. This brings us to the second part of our text. There is a goal, there is a goal, and that is maturity, the goal is maturity. So the responsibility, the responsibility is edification. The goal is maturity. There is an end goal to the edification. It's not just so that we can feel good. It's so that we can grow. That's God's goal for us. That's God's desire for us. So look, uh, I would say the first way in which we grow we grow to be a body of believers that pursue Christ-likeness. Okay, that's a goal. That's the first goal. Look at verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, till we all come. So there is a target. There is a destination, an end goal that we are trying to reach. There is somewhere we're going. He says that until we come to the unity of the faith the unity of the faith. So we're trying to grow. We're growing together. 
We're growing together, and we're trying to go towards a particular place. That requires unity. It's not like we're not trying to just herd cats in here, you know. You ever tried to herd cats? Well, if you have a couple of toddlers, then you already know what that's like. That's not what we want to be like, okay? We are growing together in love and unity, and we are working towards the same goal. We have a common belief that binds us together. We love Christ. We've been saved by Jesus, and we love His people. We love each other, and we love His Word, and we want to obey it, and we love God's will, and we want it in our lives, and we want other people to have what we have found. And so, that becomes our goal. That becomes our aim, and we're to do this together. We're to be on the same page. He says, till we come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to grow in our knowledge of Jesus experientially, relationally. We're not just trying to learn more Bible facts about Jesus. We want to walk with Him relationally. Amen? Amen. It's not just a bunch of, uh, you know, ritualistic observances merely. Those things are not bad in and of themselves as long as the end of those things is to honor and worship Christ relationally. I have a relationship with Jesus. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my friend. I want to know Him more. I want to love Him more deeply. I want to serve Him more passionately. I want to obey Him uh, more fully. And that's the goal of the body of Christ collectively. So we all do this individually. We all should be doing this in our own private time, of course. But we should also be doing it collectively. And that's why we come together on the Lord's Day. We have other times when we gather, Wednesday night, midweek service, life groups, you name it. But we come together as the body of Christ collectively in various contexts so that we can experience the goodness of God that He pours out upon His people collectively. To be a perfect man or woman, and that's the language that Paul uses here, but he's not talking about perfection in the sense that we understand it. It's to be complete, to be mature, to be fully developed, as it were. That's the goal, to come together in the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to be complete, mature, and fully developed Christians, to the measure and stature of Christ. So, Christ is our goal. Christ is the standard. That is what we are trying to grow into. I was talking to a brother the other day. He's, I'm, I'm discipling him, and I said, look, my children are they are very dependent on me for everything just about. But the goal is, and of course, when they're first born, I mean, it's 100% they are dependent on their parents. And then as time goes on, they become a little more self-sufficient and self-sustaining and able to care for their own needs more and more. But the goal is to get them to the place where they are completely self-sufficient Obviously, in, in Christ, the desire would be for them to be dependent upon God always, but they know how to work, they know how to pay their bills, they know how to drive a car, they know how to go get groceries and cook their own food, they can have their own home, they can have a productive, functional, healthy life. That's the goal. At some point, they got to stop depending on me for all of that and be able to do it themselves. Well, that's the goal 
of Christianity. That's the goal of the church, is for us to grow in Christ to the point where we are capable of doing this thing on our own, and then we teach others how to do the same. And then as they grow in their ability to do that, then they teach others to do the same. That's the way this works, right? And so initially, I'm really trying to help someone understand what it is to be a Christian and what that looks like for me, try to help them begin to develop those rhythms and patterns in their own life, and at some point, they're going to have to be totally self-sufficient in that regard, and then it's their responsibility to take someone else and teach them the same. And that's all our responsibilities in here, all of us. Well, the next thing, the next thing, the next goal is to be a body of believers that are doctrinally solid. Maturity means that we know God's Word and we stand strong and stable in it. Look at verse 14. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So we are to no longer be children, right? We're, we're, it's okay, we're, we're babes in Christ at first. The Bible uses that language and we need the milk, the milk of the Word. But the goal is to grow to a place where we are no longer children. Children are vulnerable, they're easily deceived, they're naive. They'll believe anything, really. And so we don't want to be that. We want to grow. We want to grow in maturity. We want to be built up in edification. And one of the ways in which we do this is through the teaching of God's Word, through sound doctrine, doctrine, through solid teaching, so that we would be no longer tossed to and fro. This idea of tossed around, I mean, you, you, it, it makes sense. Crashing waves being thrown around by the waves. One time, though, this really stood out to me. I was in, a, in the park with my kids, and I was trying to teach them how to fly a kite. And I haven't flown a kite in years. And it's not the easiest thing to do. And when, the, when it starts to kind of get up to a certain point, all it takes is the wind to blow a certain way, and it's like that kite just goes, bam, and slams right down into the ground. You know what I'm talking about? That's, we can be like that kite. I mean, we're going somewhere. It's looking good. It's getting exciting. And then a wind blows and crash right down on the ground. We can't be like that. We have to be so solid in God's Word that we do not crash every time some wind of doctrine blows through the church or the world. Carried about with every wind of doctrine, believing every new teaching. Uh, MacArthur says, spiritually immature believers who are not grounded in the knowledge of Christ through God's Word are inclined to uncritically accept every sort of beguiling doctrinal error and fallacious interpretation of Scripture. I love this sentence. Promulgated by deceitful false teachers in the church. They must learn discernment. You know, we've got to learn and we've got to grow. We've got to be discerning. We need to know the truth. Sound, healthy, wholesome truth from God's Word so that we're not just carried away. Amen? Part of the body being built up, every part doing its part, growing into maturity, looks like being solid in the Word of God. Solid in the Word of God. He says, so that we're not carried away by the trickery of men, cunning craftiness, and deceitful plotting. 
Another commentator says, these words here refer to the arts used by gamesters who employ false dice that will always throw up one kind of number, which is that by which those who play with them cannot win. And so, we have to be those who grow up in God's Word, who have a solid foundation, who are stable in the truth, and who are not carried away by every wind of doctrine or the trickery of men or cunning craftiness or deceitful plotting. Amen? Well, the next thing he says is that we are to be a body of believers that are totally committed to the head. Verse 15, but speaking truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ. So we are a body of believers that are committed to Jesus. That's what a mature church looks like. We are committed to Christ ultimately. And he says that we are to speak truth in love. Now, the immature wield the truth like a hammer. Sometimes people call, I remember I was that way. I felt like it was my duty in life to smash people with this hammer. If somehow I thought they were out of line or peddling false teaching or whatever, I was very aggressive, and that was all bad, all bad. And so we can take something that is meant to be healing and helpful and just do straight up damage with it. I'm sure we have experienced that. I'm sure many of us have probably done that. But we have to learn how to speak the truth in love. Jesus was full of truth, but He was full of grace. It was truth coupled with grace. And so we need to be able to speak the truth one to another in love. And oftentimes, even when we do speak the truth in love, we don't receive it very lovingly. That's the other side. It doesn't really necessarily matter how it's communicated. It can be communicated just right, but we don't like being told. We don't like being called out, and so we lash out and fight back. We need to speak the truth in love. We need to receive the truth in love. Amen? That's what maturity looks like. Growing up into Him who is the head, Christ. I'm going to use an illustration here. It's, a, it's kind of a disturbing one. Pastor Dan knows. He's, he's grumbling back there. But uh, it just makes such sense to me. It, it works for me. I had a pastor tell me what it is to grow up into the Christ who is the head. It's like he pictures Christ as this head. Right? It's a fully developed, mature adult head. And the body of Christ is like a, a tiny little body that has to grow up until it is proportionate to the head. And I think that's a perfect little illustration. I mean, that's what we're trying to do. We are trying to go, grow to the point of complete and total maturity so that we are consistent with the one that we claim to believe and to know and to love and to follow. Um, if the head is, say, is thinking one thing, and trying to command the body to do one thing, but then the body is doing something totally different, that's a problem, okay? That lets you know that there is serious sickness in the body, in the head even. And so on a human level, we understand that. So we want to be consistent with Christ as the body of Christ. We want to look to Him as the head of the church. Now, let me tell you this. Throughout the generations, there have been some serious wars wage on the issue of who is the head of the church? Who is the head of the church? And 
people have even been killed for this, killed for this, because the question was, is the Pope the head of the church, or is the King of England the head of the church? And I mean, serious, serious battles were waged over this, and lives were actually lost over this. It's crazy to think. The answer is actually quite simple. Christ is the head of the church. The Bible says Jesus is the head of the church. He is the one that the church exists to to serve and obey. Christ alone, amen? And there's really two aspects to this headship of Christ. Theologians use the words magisterial and, and vital. And the idea of the magisterial headship is that Christ governs the body. He is the object of our loyalty. We exist to serve Him. But this idea of the vital headship means that He is the source of life for the body. He gives the body what it needs, and that's totally consistent with John 15. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. So we as a body of believers, we gather together under the headship of Christ. We want to grow into him who is the head so that we can grow. So that's how we grow. We grow by being connected to Jesus, amen? By being a Christ-centered, Christ-worshiping, Christ-obeying, Christ-serving church growing up into Him who is the head. And then lastly, to be a body of believers that are totally committed to one another. That is our goal, to be a body of believers that are totally committed to one another. Look at verse 16. It says, "...from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share." causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So here Paul describes the body as being joined and knit together. And the whole body works effectively when each part does its share. See, if if any part of my body wasn't working, if any part of my hand or arm wasn't working or foot, something's got to compensate, right? The body is not functioning as it should or as it could. Uh, One commentator, he says, Some people think of the church as a pyramid with the pastor at the top. Others think of the church as a bus driven by the pastor who takes his passive passengers where they should go. God wants us to see the church as a body where every part does its share. Amen. And Paul says that when every part does its part, when every part of the body makes its contribution, this in turn causes growth for the body, for the building up of itself in love, for the edifying of itself in love. So love is the motivator behind all of this. Love for Christ, love for His body. And if you love Christ and you love, uh, love His body, then you will serve, and you will give, and you will make your contribution. You will play the part that Christ has called you to play. And just imagine a church where every member was consistently present and committed to doing their part. Could you imagine such a thing? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? It's often said, someone brought this up before church today, they said that, you know, they had heard that 
really 80% or 20% of any institution or organization does what? The majority of the work? How's that, how's that work? You know, 20% does 100% of the work, right? I get confused when I try to say that. And someone else said 20 is actually a pretty generous number. It would be nice if 20% actually did, uh, did the work. The reality is there's a small handful of people who make this whole thing float. And that's on every level, whether it's serving or giving uh, or whatever it takes to make a church function and succeed. There's a small handful of people that are putting in all the work and the resources to make this thing function. Imagine if every single person played their part. Imagine if every part did its part. Imagine if every person made the contribution that God was calling them to make for the edification of the body of Christ, for the building up of itself in love. Man, how awesome would that be? How effective for God's kingdom could we be? How fruitful in the work of the ministry could we be if we all did our part collectively? Amen? And again, this is not, as I said before, um, I'm passionate about this. I believe this. I believe clearly this is what the Word of God calls us to, and so I, I say these things unapologetically, but I'm not here to like guilt trip people or condemn people or try to play some legalistic kind of thing here. I think this is necessary, amen? It's clear from the Scriptures. We must obey it, and I want you all to experience the fullness of what Christ has for you. That's what I want. That's my heart as a pastor. I want you to experience the fullness and nothing less. I do not want you to deprive yourself of all that God has for you. So often, that's exactly what happens. God stands there with His hand extended with the fullness of riches and, and grace to dispense, and we hold back. We don't want to go. We don't want to go further. We don't want to go deeper. And there's so much more that we can know. There's so much more in which we could grow. There's so much more that we could do and accomplish for Christ and for His glory. Amen? If only we would make this commitment. Make this commitment. Jesus, you're worth it. And I love you and I love your church. I love the body. And I want to grow. And I want to do my part for your glory. Amen? Let's pray. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this passage. Lord, we want to be committed. Lord, we want to uh, recognize our responsibility. Lord, we want to pursue this goal of Christ-likeness and doctrinal stability. We want to mature in you. God, we want to be completely and totally committed to one another. I pray that you would move in the hearts and the lives of your people today. I thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, that you have done for us what we can never do for ourselves. Thank you that you have served your body completely and fully. Thank you that you have sacrificed and given in ways that we will never fully know on this side of eternity. Thank you that you gave your life so that we could live. Thank you for that amazing grace that, Jesus, you lived the life 
that we have failed to live. You have lived the life of obedience to the Father that we could never live. We could never do it, ever. And then you died the death that we deserve. You suffered God's wrath in our stead as our substitute. And then you rose again from the grave. And then you told us that if we trust you, if we repent of our sins and believe in you, that we would have life everlasting, that our sins would be washed away, that we would be forgiven, that we would be ushered into the family of God, that we would be given the right to be called children of God. Thank you for the gift of the gospel. Thank you for the good news of our salvation in Jesus Christ that has been once and for all delivered to the saints. Help us to contend for that truth, Lord. Help us to hold to that truth for dear life and to pass it on to others. We worship you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.